Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Job 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He's kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart grows faint within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, In his perfect wisdom, God Almighty has made people vulnerable. In his wisdom, God Almighty has made people vulnerable. Maybe your first thought is, that's right, I'm thinking of children. Maybe you're thinking about children and about how they are vulnerable because they have such a high uh, level of trust, such that they're naive and will trust 
anyone with a van handing out free candy, we think, yes, that is a vulnerability. We need to protect children. Or maybe when you think of people being vulnerable, you're thinking of adults who have suffered a brain injury or were born with some sort of cognitive issue that keeps them from functioning like other people their age. Or perhaps you think of those people in their twilight years who suffer from Alzheimer's or dementia and are vulnerable in ways that they never could have imagined. People are vulnerable. Maybe instead of simply thinking about a particular segment of people, you're thinking about how people as a whole are vulnerable and how God has constructed us in such a way that we are all born with a, if you think about it, a nervously uh, realistic, unprotected neck. You think about how unprotected your neck is and how much important stuff goes through your neck. Right through here, there's no rib cage protecting your neck. But the jugular vein goes right through here, your windpipe is right here, your spinal cord is right here. A neck issue is something, a neck injury can come easily and can wipe you off the planet immediately. People are vulnerable. There are many vulnerabilities to mention in the realm of people, but I want you to think about the very vulnerability that God spoke of when he was creating humanity in Genesis 1. All of his work was good, but when God made Adam and no suitable helper was found for him, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. After this announcement, God made Eve and gave her to him. This act, this protection, this completion and caring for Adam's vulnerability reveals that marriage is a God-envisioned reality for the good of humanity, but not only marriage. Don't think of Adam and Eve only as husband and wife. They are also friends. God has made human beings, every one of us, vulnerable, and because of that, God has designed friendship, the existence of the family, and even society, whole groups of people interacting together because of our vulnerability. God has made you vulnerable. God has made it in such a way that you are not okay on your own. And God has put you in relationships of a variety of different sorts so that you would be protected, so that you would be cared for, and that your vulnerability had a chance of survival. God made people, and they are uniquely vulnerable when they're alone. We were made by God himself to be incomplete on our own. Do you hear me? You look in the mirror and you think, I'm just incomplete on my own. Yep, precisely the way God made you. God designed humanity to be vulnerable and to need other people. And like a toy sold with batteries not included, we simply are not complete on our own. Our text this morning depicts righteous Job trying to survive on his own. He hasn't pushed people away. He hasn't stubbornly refused God's creating him with vulnerabilities. But all the people around him keep forcing him into greater isolation. From, this, from his lonely sickbed, Job cries out for mercy from his friends. And then he rests his undying hope in God's redemption. And with that brief summary of our text, I want to draw out this big idea or put this big idea here in front of you at the beginning 
uh, in hopes that you will walk away from Job 19 sensing that this truly is um, real. This is reality for all of us. The big idea I hope to draw out from our text this morning is this. Jesus is the hope of those seeking mercy. Jesus is the hope of those seeking mercy. As we look at Job's pained words to his friends who have been cruel toward him and his words of enduring hope in God's salvation, it's my hope that you will see in Jesus a comforting reason to endure hardship as you wait for him to make all things new in his kingdom. So three points, three steps as we walk through. The last one is just a little baby point, so don't get worried about that thing hanging out there. Uh, But three points as we work through. First, the cry of mercy, the hope in God, and third, the warning to the merciless. The cry for mercy, the hope in God, the warning to the merciless. All right, let's get into that first point, this cry for mercy that we see in the first 22 verses of Job 19. In beginning in verse 2 and going through verse 22, we read Job's response to not only his friend Bildad, who spoke harshly in chapter 18, but also Job's friends Zophar and Eliphaz, who have been his miserable counselors all the way since chapter 3. Job is speaking to all of them. He's speaking in the plural as he speaks to these men about the way they have been speaking to him. Uh, We read Job's weighed down and discouraged words beginning in verses 2 and 3 where we read, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? As Job addresses these three friends, he notes the abundance of their words and their destructive power. The abundance of their words and the destructive power of those words. These ten times is a way of communicating an idea, not an exact number per se, but the idea that a lot more than a few words have been said. These ten times, an overwhelming amount of words have been spoken to him, and Job is letting them know. And when he tells them that their words have broken him in pieces, he's expressing the invisible emotional pain that has been inflicted by their cruel words. Job is a mature, reliable, and godly man, and yet he's using vivid and evocative language to tell of the ways his friends have hurt him with their words. Just a quick look at that and you realize Job is using strong language to let his friends know You're wearing me out. When are you going to stop busting me up with your words? Verse 4 can be a little tricky to understand, so let's take a moment there and look at that. At first glance, it might look as if Job is saying, my sins are a private issue and none of your business. It might look like Job is saying, my sins are my sins, you just stay out of it. It might seem that Job is Uh, pressing them away and saying, stop judging me. But I don't think that fits with the godly character that we see of Job. Uh, Commentator John Hartley explains that the Hebrew word translated error in our ESV Bibles, uh, he says it refers to an inadvertent mistake, the kind of wrongful act that everyone commits, 
by reason of being human. So Job isn't saying, stop looking for mistakes in me. My life is private. Don't. He's, not, he's not doing that. But what he's saying, the error is with me, is that, or that it remains with myself. What he's saying is, I'm not perfect. Human beings make mistakes. This is this is reality, but what he is saying, and I think what rightly is Hartley, the commentator, the guy I've been quoting here for a moment, what he's right to do is to point us away from thinking that Job is hiding behind some supposed fig leaves of self-righteousness or supposed personal privacy. But what Hartley says, and I think we rightly understand as we look at this verse, is that Job is remaining confident that he has never sinned as gravely as his misfortune suggests. Verse 4, Job is saying, I'm not perfect, but what I have done does not meet up with the kind of treatment that I am experiencing. These circumstances don't line up with the, the errors that I've committed. Verse 5 repeats Job's defense that his friends are believing Job to be worse than themselves only because of his suffering and using his misfortune as if it were proof of his sinfulness. Understand what he's saying there? He's saying, you're looking at me and you think you're better than me because my lot in life is so hard. Things are going poorly for me right now and you're standing there saying, we're better than you, Job. Why? Because our bank accounts have more money in it. More of our children are alive, and this is proof that we are people to be listened to and that you are a bad person, Job. Job has said this a number of times, but he's saying, you can't simply call me a bad sinner because my life is a mess. You've not pointed out the things that I've done wrong. And Job is defending himself against these poor accusations of his friends. Job then reiterates his view in verse 6 that God's mysterious and sovereign providence has dealt bitterly with him and that this is not God's discipline upon his rebellion. Job is looking at his life. He is weeping and crying because of the bitter providence that God has brought upon him. And his friends have said, God is disciplining you. God is disciplining you. God is disciplining you. And Job is saying, that is not accurate. I'm not a perfect man, but this does not fit with any sort of discipline or fatherly care. Job is holding on to his righteousness. Job says then in verse 7, Behold, I cry out, violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. And in verses 8 through 12, Job speaks of the pain of feeling like God has turned against him. Satan accused God, back in chapter 1, verse 10 of Job, Satan accused God of protecting Job with a great hedge around him. You all heard that in prayer, maybe a a number of times a person's favorite prayer is that God would put a hedge of protection around so-and-so. Right? That comes from Job chapter 1, and Satan uses those words against God and says, God, no wonder Job loves you. You've put a hedge of protection around him. Satan used that accusation against Job and against God, and he said, and he claimed that Job's worship was only fair weather friendship. 
Satan then attacks Job. And now we see in this section in verses 8 through 12 that this once great hedge of protection now feels to Job like prison walls. See that in verse 8, Job crying out that it feels like instead of being protected that he's hedged in. And then in chapter, and then in verse 12, Job is saying he doesn't feel like he has a hedge of protection. He feels like he has an encircling army with siege works camped around him ready to bust him down. Job is no longer feeling the Lord's smiling blessing. Understatement, yeah? His godly living was once coupled with great wealth and relational joy, but all of that has been taken away, and Job has absolutely no clue why. Job is oblivious to Satan's designs that he wants to show Job's worship to be false and only the response to good gifts. He's completely unaware why God is treating him this way, why God is allowing these things to come upon him. But it's clear that Job is not having a good time. It's clear that he does not feel the Lord's smile upon him. Then in verses 13 through 22, these verses show how Job feels totally abandoned by every single person around him. It's a lengthy section, and number of names are listed, but the length here is for you to feel the weight. Job could easily say, everyone's abandoned me, and the psalmist will say a phrase like that, but here Job makes a list. He wants you to feel the weight of how many people and who those people are who have abandoned him. In verse 13, his brothers. His brothers are estranged from him. And in verse 14, his relatives and close friends have forgotten him. His guests and servants treat him like a stranger. Um, And then in verse 15 and 16. Verse 17 says his wife won't come near him. Verse 18 says, small children treat him like a monster. And verse 19 says, his beloved and intimate friends have treated him with disdain and hatred. And all of this while his body has wasted away and nearly ended his life. Some of us can look at that list and say, yeah, I'm estranged from a family member or I know what it's like to experience one of those things. But Job is saying, all of these people treat me this way. Complete rejection, complete distancing themselves from him. It's not simply been the loss of children. It's not simply been the loss of um, estate and wealth. It's not simply been the loss of health. Every relationship in Job's life, all of the people who were near and dear to him, all of the people that kept him from being alone, seem to be now tools of the evil one, twisting, trying to get Job to curse God. Job then closes this part of his cry in verse 21 with a great pleading with his friends to have mercy on him. Appreciated the way Jake leaned into that cry for mercy when he was reading. He's crying out for his friends to show him some sort of tenderness. He then entreats his friends in verse 22 to tell them why they've been so cruel, why they've been so discontent with the humiliation God has poured out on him and have added their own suffering to his life. 
Verses 21 and 22 are hard to read, aren't they? Can you imagine being the friend sitting there while Job's pleading from his sickbed? Have mercy on me. Show me some tenderness. Why? Why have you watched God strip me of everything and then you come into my sickbed and you add to my misery more misery? Why have you been this way? My intimate friends, God has poured out pain upon pain and then you think I need more pain from you. He pleads with them. Have mercy on me. As we look over this painful cry for mercy from Job, I want to make sure that we don't stay up in the gallery watching everything going on, but that we get down and and understand what it is that we're being taught and that we're learning from what's happening in this difficult section. This is the kind of relational drama that we like to watch on TV knowing that we can pause it at any moment and move away. But the scriptures don't give us that. They give us Job 19 and the suffering here so that we would learn and grow from it. Before Job was sent into this terrible series of demonic attacks, Job is presented to us in chapters 1 and 2 as a man among men. Everything that a godly man ought to be is Job. Job is presented to us in the early chapters as a man among men and godly man par excellence. If Proverbs 31 tells us about a godly woman who surpasses them all, Job 1 tells us that Job is the undisputed most excellent man. So as we see him suffering, understand it in context, that this is a man among men, that Job is godly. With that said, I want you to see it with absolute clarity that this manly man is wrecked and vocal about how his friends have hurt him. This man pouring out his pain, pouring out his anguish about the words his friends have spoken to him and the way his friends have treated him, this godly man is wrecked by that. And he's not just quiet and cold, he's vocal. Job has a lot to say about this. He doesn't shrug off their cold and callous bedside manner as, well, that's just the way men are. You just have to understand men aren't good with compassion. Men aren't the nurturing gender. He doesn't just shrug it off as some silly thing like that. He doesn't comfort himself with any silly songs like sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No, Job says, how long will you miserable counselors torment me and break me in pieces with your words? How long? This godly and manly man is not only hurt by the cruel words of his friends, but even the wordless neglect and avoidance of family in his time of need is clearly expressed. Job expects his friends to stand with him in his time of need. He expects his wife, his friends, and family to care for him in his pain and not abandon him or oppose him when the going gets tough. Job has no expectation of himself to be able to do life, and especially this trial, alone. He expects the people closest to him 
to stick with him. He expects them to be merciful toward him. Job is hurt and he doesn't hide it. He doesn't clench his jaw and close himself off from the world. Job is hurting and the pain inflicted on the words of friends and the neglect of others is found on his lips. Job rightly craves the tenderness of others and he cries out for mercy. Do you see the wisdom and the manliness and the godliness of Job to say, this is outrageous. It's not good for man to be alone. And here in my time of need, you are abandoning me. This is wrong. The way you are treating me is wrong. And do you see how different this is from how many pictures of manhood we have had? How many men do you know who just go into a room and they're alone? Who don't really have much to say in situations and don't really want to get involved in difficult relationships. Honestly, how many men do you know that are that way? I'm willing to bet it's more than one or two. Do you see how different that is from Job? I want to say something that applies to all of us, but I think it is particularly important for the men in the room to hear this. This is for everyone, women, hone in, but brothers, You and I have been given a lot of instruction through movies and stories and probably a lot of other male relationships that have told us that real men don't waste time crying about how other people treat us. A manly man doesn't lose sleep over cruel words or neglect. Some men even scoff, heaven forbid, but some men scoff at the idea of someone being verbally abused. They think it a silly thing when somebody talks about being wounded by mere words. It's a common pattern, a common reality in the world you and I live in. But look at what Job says in verse 7. Look with me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. Job is making clear that he relies on other people and their failure to come to his aid is an injustice on their part. It's an injustice that the people closest to him have not come to his rescue when he's cried out for help. Job is a man and he expects the people around him to care for him and help him. Just like Rambo, right? just like Conan the Barbarian, just like so many of these sorry young people, you don't know who those people are, but the stereotypical manly man can do it on his own. It's good that I'm alone. I don't need nobody. Nobody owes me anything. I will handle it myself. But that's not Job. That's not Job at all. He's crying foul. You owe me. You are my family. You need to come to my aid. Their failure to hear his cry for help is a wicked failure to do do what Job and other sufferers are right to expect. Hear me. Friends and family 
have a responsibility to help one another through difficulties. Every word in that sentence is chosen on purpose. Friends and family have a responsibility to help one another through difficulties. I don't have a responsibility to help everyone through every difficulty. But my friends and my family, to them, I have a responsibility that if I don't fulfill that responsibility, I am in the wrong. Spouses and fellow church members are wrong. They're wrong to avoid needy partners and change addresses when the going gets tough. Hear me. It's not good for man to be alone. God has made us vulnerable. We need each other. And it's wrong for people to get out when the going gets tough. Certainly, there are exceptions to this, but those rare, hear me, rare exceptions prove the rule. The rule is we have a responsibility to one another. Galatians 6 2. I don't, brothers and sisters, I don't know that we feel, we rightly feel the weight of these words, but Galatians 6 2 plainly says that the law of Christ requires, demands, and expects us. To bear one another's burdens. You get all sorts of complicated and complex and heated discussions about the Ten Commandments, and there's a place for that. But the law of Christ clearly commands bear one another's burdens. Man or woman, brothers, I hope you hear me speaking to you directly. But every one of us, each and every one of us, is right to expect fellow church members to care for us in our need. Getting ghosted by a friend, mocked by family, or rejected by a spouse is cruel and hurtful. We're not childish or wussy or weak to be hurt by the words of other people. Job was a godly and manly man. He expected others to help him in his need, and he humbly cried out for mercy. So many of the heroes in manly stories never cry out for mercy, do they? But I'm pointing you to Job, and I'm saying this is the godly man that we should be looking at. This is a manly man, and he's crying out for mercy. Job is full of grief, but his grieving is not without hope. Hear me. This is a heavy passage, but Job's grief is not without hope. Let's look at this second point and notice the hope in God. In verses 23 through 27, Job is heard pressing his point further with continued confidence, but now with a shift focusing on God's response. Job says in verses 23 and 24, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in rock forever. Job is persistent and unyielding. His friends have failed to convince him of their position, and now he's ready for a monument or a grave marker to bear witness to his unwavering allegiance to God. I want you to understand that Job is 
set like stone. He is set like flint. He is like, I am not changing my mind. The more we talk about this, the more settled I am. I'm ready to set up a monument. I'm ready to have a conversation with the the grave marker guy. This is what I want written on my stone. And I want you to understand that he's not exercising confidence in himself but he's exercising an unwavering allegiance and faith in God. He's not saying, I am a good man and no one can prove me wrong. No, what he's saying is is that I have trusted God my entire life, and I'm not giving up now, nor any day in the future. I am not giving up. I'm sticking this marker in the ground. I am not wavering from this. God is just. God is good, and I am not bowing down to all of this pressure to get me off of my track. We might be tempted to see Job's grand exclamation here as proud self-justification. Anybody that says, I'm ready to throw up a billboard, I'm ready to throw up a stone, I'm ready to ride it and rock forever, that person's a little off their rocker and probably filled with pride. We might look at that and think that this is proud self-justification from Job, But you've got to set these statements within the context of the great things that God has said about this man. God said, God himself said back in chapter 1, that Job was a faithful servant. And that there, quote, is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Talk about a character reference. God said this about Job. Job's persistence is not pride. Job's persistence is the perseverance of faith. He refuses to let Satan twist his thoughts and twist his posture toward God. Even if his friends nag him with incomplete theology, Job knows God is just and that he disciplines the wicked, but Job refuses to let his friends deny the faith that has guided his life. They are coming to Job and saying, Job, you're a wicked scoundrel who doesn't trust in God. You have a hidden life of secret sin that God's disciplining. And Job says, I trust God. I always have and I always will, and I'm not going to let you tell me that I don't. I trust God. In verse 25, Job grounds the reason for his faith. Faith has a reason. Faith has a ground. It isn't just hanging out there in the air. Job sinks his faith down into this. Job says in verse 25, For for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job's hope is not in the strength of his faith. Job's hope is in the strength of his Redeemer. Job is confident. Job is boasting in his Redeemer. This title, this uh, job, this task, this role uh, of a Redeemer is is given to us with the Hebrew word goel. Now, I don't want to get all weird with uh, biblical languages or anything, but just this simple little word, goel. Okay, uh, Goel is a very common um, word in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a very common role that we see in a variety of different places, but it's used in Scripture most often to refer to the role of a kinsman redeemer. Okay, so you know what a punt returner is. You know what a 
second baseman is, you know what a uh, head linesman is, you know what all these things. Kinsman redeemer was a particular role, the goel in the Hebrew society, the kinsman redeemer played a particular and important job. The ancient task of the kinsman redeemer that, that Job is speaking of here This kinsman redeemer was to come to the aid of fellow family members in their time of great need. Right? So people are together, people are families, we're brothers, we're sisters, but in a particular time of need, one person would rise and and be dubbed kinsman redeemer. You are the one who needs to come to this. to this point of need and fix it. You are the kinsman redeemer. This is a role to be played in human family and society. Uh, One commentator writes it this way. There were specific situations that required the next of kin to act on a brother's behalf. Whenever a member of the clan was murdered, a kinsman had the responsibility to avenge his brother's blood. If a brother was taken captive uh, or sold into bondage to pay off a debt, his nearest relative redeemed him by securing his release, either with payment of a price or by an act of force. Whenever a member of the clan was forced to lease or sell his property to pay a debt, his kinsman paid off the debt to secure his family's title to that land. If a kinsman died childless, his brother took his widow and raised up children in the name of his deceased brother in order to preserve his heritage." Kinsman Redeemer had a responsibility, had a role. A particular person would bear the, bear the brunt of helping this brother, helping this kinsman out of his situation. And Job is saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. Many instances of redemption are acted out in Scripture. And I'm sure you're thinking even now of uh, instances where the kinsman Redeemer came to the rescue. Abraham rescuing Lot, was acting as the kinsman redeemer. Lot got into trouble. Not my problem could have been Abraham's response, but it wasn't. He was a kinsman redeemer, and he redeemed. He rescued Lot from his situation. Boaz, you know the story of Ruth. Boaz came to the rescue. He was the kinsman redeemer. He took upon himself the responsibility of taking care of what was necessary in a family member's time of need. In each case, one person was in a desperate situation and the family savior or the kinsman redeemer took responsibility in order to save the day. It's written in vulnerable humanity and the code of godly society that family takes care of one another. It's interesting how the kinsman redeemer reflects that reality that it's not good for man to be alone. And if my brother's in debt... There's a responsibility and there's a burden upon me as brother. If my, my sister is in a bad situation, I don't have the option of closing my eye. One of us has to do something to come to the rescue. Job may be pointing to this idea of a kinsman redeemer within his particular family But in light of his cries of violence that have fallen on deaf ears, it's probably wise that we consider other options. Job has just said, all of my kinsmen have abandoned me. Everybody who would redeem me 
doesn't pay attention to me and treats me like a monster. But here he stands and he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Rescuer, my Savior lives. I have confidence. I have great hope. And so there's a sense where our first thought, this should probably be a family member, but seeing how his family has left him, I think it's good that we consider other options. It's important to know that in the scriptures, God himself is also referred to as a goel, a kinsman redeemer. In the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage, God is referred to as the redeemer of Israel. And the same thing is said also in the Babylonian captivity when God brings about a second exodus. God is spoken of there as the kinsman redeemer of Israel. God also speaks of himself in these terms in multiple places in Isaiah 41, 44, and 49. God uses this idea of the goel, the kinsman redeemer, to speak of himself. While the author of Job could have used a number of other titles, it seems to be the idea here that the common Godward use of the term and the absence of any human helps seems to be pointing to Job trusting in God to bring about his redemption. And we see that interpretation done for us in the, as the ESV capitalizes the letter R in Redeemer to signify that. When Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives He's speaking of God coming to him, his rescue, coming to him as his redeemer. And the ESV helps us see that by capitalizing that first R in redeemer. So let's refresh. Job is abandoned and abused by his closest associations, but yet by faith he clings to his God who is both just and merciful, tough and tender, and I hope, I hope you see that this is where Job's friends go wrong. God is just, God is just, God is just, God is just, God is just. Is that true? Absolutely. Is that the whole story? Job is, is, is looking at his situation and he's looking to God and says, he's also a redeemer. God is just and he is also merciful. Job goes on to say, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Job boasts with a confidence in God. He boasts with confidence that he will be vindicated in days to come. He looks at the abandonment and the, the scorn that he's receiving from his, his friends. He says, my rescue will come. I'm confident that the Lord will do the right thing in his own time. The language of this section is particularly difficult and several possible interpretations of what exactly Job is saying have merit. But what seems clear is that Job expects God to come to his rescue when he has eyes to see. He expects God to come to his rescue in his own time. Uh, what is hard to understand here in this section is whether or not Job is talking about this redemption happening after death in some sort of resurrection work, or if there is something else at play here. 
We see hints of a resurrection idea in these verses, but we only really see that in light of much later revelation of God's plan to raise the bodies of the dead saints to live in everlasting life. I think if you're looking at these verses here in Job, you wouldn't think, oh, that's definitely death, resurrection, ascension, uh, justification before the great white throne. I don't think you're going to see all that in these words, but... Being people who read the New Testament, probably before we read the book of Job, we think, we look at this and we see resurrection, God's vindication, God's judgment and justification of the saints after resurrection, and we see that there, but I think we need to be careful to say, I don't think all of that is there in those verses, but I think we're right to see it there when we look back from the perspective that we have on this side of the cross and empty tomb. Uh, one commentator, O'Donnell, says it well, and he writes this about this particular passage. He says, Certainly, when Job, in his historical context, uttered verses 25 through 27, he was not thinking about Jesus' death and resurrection and the hope that Christians gain from those redemptive events. However, Christian commentators from the time of origin in the third century on have read this text with Jesus, our Redeemer, in mind. And rightly so. Is Job expressing the whole gospel of Jesus coming as an infant, living a perfect life, dying a death on the cross, bearing the burdens of the elect, and going into the tomb to be raised again for our justification? Job has no, he doesn't know those things. But what he knows is that God is just and merciful. And he knows that God is a redeemer. And he knows that God will not abandon him and leave him alone. And so in that, we see this faith fulfilled in what Christ has done as our Redeemer. As a man who knew God and trusted him, Job knew that God was both just and merciful. He believed that God would come to his rescue, even if it seemed like he had locked him out of his good graces. Job knew that God wasn't content to leave the sons of Adam and the sons of Noah alone to rot under the curse with no hope. Job trusted in God's goodness. Job trusted that God would, in, at some time and in some way, come to his rescue. Job knew that trusting God was not in vain. Calvin writes, if Job spoke thus in a time when there was not yet any great learning and the law was not yet written, and neither were there any prophets, if he, having only a little spark of light, was so strengthened in his afflictions that he was able to say, yet shall I see my God, what excuse is there for us in these days when God has shown us the resurrection so clearly and gives us so many good promises of it? Job had a tiny little spark. And every Sunday we come to a table and say, Jesus died, paid the penalty for your redemption. I, some of you don't do well. Some, I don't do well. Some, I read Calvin's line. I'm like, bro, don't be like, yeah, what excuse do I have? I don't know, but, but I struggle. I struggle to believe. But if I think, I think if we take Calvin as a faithful pastor who's not content to proudly chide his people for not having more faith. I think what he's saying is a strong encouragement. Brother, sister, you have ample reason to trust the Lord. 
God has given you many sure and precious promises to trust him in the midst of your difficulty. Job had just a spark of light, yet it was enough to believe that God would come to his rescue. You and I have the full display of Jesus coming to earth in a full humanity, paying our debts at the cross and rising to new life for our redemption. Christians don't have to wonder if or how God will act as our kinsman redeemer. He's already done it. We don't have to sit there in the dark and wonder, oh, when will God come to my rescue? We look to the cross and say, he's already paid the penalty. He's already redeemed me. Beloved, Christ is our redeemer. Your hope is Christ. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us. Hear it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus wasn't just crucified because that's what Romans thought was cool. Jesus was crucified because he was paying a price to redeem a people, to redeem you, the elect. Jesus was redeeming, buying people. Titus 2.14 Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus Christ bought. Jesus Christ redeemed. Jesus Christ went into the place of slavery and of exile and he brought us out. So that we could live a life doing anything and everything and whatever we want? No, Jesus redeemed us so that he would have a people who are zealous for good works like he is. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, therefore I have hope. Brother, sister, you know that your Redeemer lives, therefore you have hope, therefore you have purpose, therefore you have meaning and identity. Who am I? I'm a redeemed person, bought by God, belonging to him, and bought by God to be zealous for good works. That's who I am. That's what I am. Because he is our redeemer, we can endure pain and abandonment with hope. Brother, sister, hear me. Many of you are feeling have felt, and all of us, if not these two things, will feel abandoned and in great pain, just like Job. All of us. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to say in the midst of that darkness? What are we supposed to do when family and friends treat us cruelly? What do we do? I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that he lives. And if Jesus is our redeemer, these precious, precious words from Romans 8 are sweet to us. If Jesus is our redeemer, what then shall we say to these things? Listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? Seriously. Your whole family could be against you. The whole nation could be against you. Your spouse could be against you. Your best friend could be against you. Who can be be against us if God is for us? What is it 
If we lose every relationship and yet God is for me, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how in the world will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised. He is at the right hand of God, and he is indeed interceding for us. What is the weight of all these words accusing me and judging me and rejecting me when Jesus is standing at the right hand of God interceding for me? Good night. You can be hurt by the people closest to you and in such pain. But if you know that God is for you and that Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, oh, brother, sister, don't you have hope? Don't you have hope? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What could be a hedge? What could be a wall? What could be a penetrating army that could separate us from the love of Christ? Cause us to be unloved by God. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, a sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know that my Redeemer lives. Saints, if God is your kinsman redeemer, then you can have the same hope as Job. It's yours. If you are in Christ, that is your hope. You look your cruel friends in the face and say, what is the reason for this? Yet I know my redeemer lives. I know that my redeemer lives. Brother, sister, this is your hope. It's yours. You have it if you are in Christ. It's already yours. But the difficult thing is, by faith, are we going to grasp it? Like Pilgrim who had a promise in his chest pocket, his breast pocket, that all he had to do was take that, that promise out of his pocket and he was out of the giant's dungeon. You have that key. You have that hope. It's yours. So let me challenge you, let me encourage you in the midst of your hardship, say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. I told you about that little baby third point, here it is. Job closes chapter 19 with a warning to his merciless friends, and that's how we'll close here our time as well. Point three, the warning for the merciless, verses 27 and 28. In these last two verses, Job addresses his three miserable friends with these words. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. Clear and succinct, Job warns his merciless friends that there is judgment for those who do not care for their needy friends and family. Job warns his merciless friends of the wrath, punishment, 
and judgment of God as he considers the possibility of these men continuing to chase him with their accusations. As Job warns his friends, so I I think it's necessary that I, from the scriptures, warn you. You and I also need to hear the warning of Job. James 2.13 says the exact, nearly the same thing. Judgment is without mercy for the one who shows no mercy. God's judgment is without mercy for the one who doesn't show mercy to others. Jesus encourages us, says it in a different manner. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We could invert that and say, cursed are the unmerciful, for they will not receive mercy. I want you to have the hope of Christ, but I want you to hear the warning of Scripture. Are you being cruel in your words with your spouse? Are you being merciless to your one flesh partner? Parents, are you using your words to mercilessly cut down your children, to break them without love? Children, hear me. Are you honoring and obeying your parents with your words? Is it kindness and love and respect that's coming out of your mouth towards your mom or your dad? Would your friends say that you are a merciful friend? Would they say you're the kind of person who will be there when they're in need? Church members, Are you leaving room in your schedule to help people who are in need? Or are you hoping nobody asks you? Family members, do you understand and believe that you have a responsibility to bear the burdens of the people closest to you, to be merciful to those in need of mercy? Beloved, The righteous man, Job, expected help from those closest to him, and when he didn't receive it, he cried out for mercy. His cries were not hopeless because he knew his Redeemer lives. Job's hope is our hope, and his Redeemer is our Redeemer. Christ hears those who cry to him for mercy, and Jesus Christ shows mercy to those who by faith in him show mercy to others. Friends, our Redeemer lives. Our Redeemer lives. And he showed himself to be our Redeemer when he came in the flesh to pay the penalty, to pay our debt with his body at the cross. His resurrection showed that his redeeming work was effective. And so we rejoice that Christ is our Redeemer, that our redemption is sure, that we can go through anything and everything with confidence that our Redeemer's redemption is secure. 